Amen. In June of 1978, some of you weren't even born then. I was. I was six years old. <laughs> 1978, June of 1978, the Kentucky legislature adopted a statute that required 16 inch by 20 inch copies of the Ten Commandments to be displayed in every public school classroom in the state. Two years later, the Supreme Court struck down that statute in its Stone v. Graham ruling, arguing that the law was unconstitutional. It violated the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment. That ruling was not received well by many in religious circles. And a number of years later, one televangelist distributed Ten Commandments textbook covers as an alternative way of getting the biblical laws into the public school system. His disapproval of their removal and his aim with these book covers was clear from his accompanying statements. This is what he said. The posting of the Ten Commandments would be a wonderful first step in rebuilding the character of our nation. Now, I, I think it's important to consider the assumptions that stand behind that kind of statement. The assumptions that stand behind that kind of activism. Clearly, there are certain assumptions about how the character of a nation is built. There are certain assumptions about the church's ministry and specifically her ministry of God's word. And clearly there are certain assumptions there about the Ten Commandments. But what are the Ten Commandments? And, and, and what is it about these Old Testament laws that has inspired people in every generation, even making their way to the U.S. Supreme Court? Let's examine this and let's examine our own assumptions as we come to God's word this morning by turning, if you haven't done so already, to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4, one of last week's readings from our Bible reading plan here at Way of Grace. We hope that if you're not already reading with us, that you will join in reading through our Old Testament track this year. We're excited about that. I pray that you've been blessed so far as we've dug into God's word. Before we look together at verses 12 through 14, that will be our main text this morning, 12 through 14, let me just mention the context here. It's always important when we drop into God's word like this that we not cherry pick some verse out of context, but we really do understand what's happening in the present context of this passage. Deuteros namas is a Greek word. It comes from the, the old Greek translation of the, of the, of the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures called the Septuagint. And it simply means second law. Deuteros namas, second law. Why is it called that? Because it's pointing us to the fact that this book represents Moses announcing the law of God to the younger or the second generation of Hebrews to come out of Egypt. 
These Israelites would have been kids or teenagers when they left Egypt. The older generation who was under the judgment of God now had died out in the desert as they wandered around until the last of them died. And this younger generation was poised. They were ready to cross the Jordan River. They were ready to finally enter the land that had been promised to their forefathers. Moses has been in Deuteronomy from chapter 1 on. He has been and he is rehearsing the events that have led them up to this point. Why do that? Because he wants them to remember all that God has done for them. He wants them to see the hand of God in their history up and up to the present moment. And he wants them, all of them, to understand what God expects of them. Look with me at chapter 4, verse 12. Now that we have that context in mind, it says this. Then the Lord, that's Yahweh in Hebrew, the name, the divine name. Then Yahweh spoke to you, says Moses, talking to the, the, the Israelites. He spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. He's talking about when they were before Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. Two names for the same mountain. This is what he's describing there. You heard the sound of words from that fire, but you saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments. Now, let me stop just for a second. Give you just a little bit of an encouragement to look over at the next chapter, chapter 5. You may have to turn a page in your Bible. Look at chapter 5 and look at verses 6 down through 21. See those? Those are the Ten Commandments right there. So if there was any, um, if there was any confusion about what the Ten Commandments are, you can look over. I trust that most of you know what those Ten Commandments are, but you can review them if you'd like right there. That's what we're talking about. Going back to chapter 4, verse 13, he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And Yahweh commanded me, said Moses, at that time to teach you statutes and rules that you might do them in the land that you are going over to possess. Okay, so let's let's do this. Let's take those three verses and actually let's let's take a look at three basic observations just from that short passage about the Ten Commandments. First, notice that the Ten Commandments... Or literally in the Hebrew, the ten words, the ten words. Notice these are not marching orders or mandates from Moses, are they? They're not from Moses. No, they are, take a look on the screen here. They are the very words of God. Verse 12, Yahweh spoke. Verse 13, he declared to you. He commanded you. He wrote them. Now, knowing this, we want to follow the Thessalonians example, don't we? Yeah, it was a thousand, over a thousand years after the time of Moses. But remember what Paul said about the Thessalonians. He said, when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, 
but as what it really is, the Word of God. Let that be us this morning, amen? Let that be us, that we hear the Word of God this morning and we receive it as such. Now, second, these are the very words of God, but second, it's clear that these ten words really are ten commandments. Or using the language of verse 14, these are statutes and rules. Moses received them from God and he was called to teach them to the people. To what end? Verse 14, that you might do them in the land you are going over to possess. Now, why did they need to do them in the land? Hold on to that idea. So these are the words of God himself, like we saw in the first point. But notice that they are also, they are revelation from our creator. They are, but they are not simply heavenly suggestions. They are commands. They are the laws of God. And laws are given to be what? Obeyed. They're given to be obeyed. Third, and maybe most important, these commandments are clearly referred to in verse 13 as the covenant. These commandments are referred to as the covenant. God declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is, which covenant? The Ten Commandments. Now, the words that is are meant to clarify the words the covenant. And this same language is found in Exodus 34:28. Take a look here. Where the writer tells us that Yahweh wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are the covenant. They are the words of the covenant. We know in the book of Hebrews... Hebrews recognizes this very fact when in chapter 9, verse 4, it points its readers to the tablets of the covenant. There they are. The Ten Commandment tablets that were preserved in the Ark of the Covenant, they were the tablets of the covenant. But what exactly does this mean? What exactly does this mean? How are the Ten Commandments a covenant? A covenant is, is a solemn agreement, an arrangement between two parties. How are these a covenant? Well, to answer that question, we need to look back to that pivotal passage that I mentioned last time that we were together. Exodus, Exodus 19, verses 5 through 6. We'll put this on the screen for you. Exodus 19, verses 5 through 6. Israel's already been rescued from, from Egypt. They've come out of Egypt, out of their bondage. They've come through the Red Sea. Now they stand at the foot of Mount Sinai. God tells his newly redeemed people this. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenants, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Notice the language there. If. Obey, keep my covenants, then you shall be. Now, now wait a minute. Covenant, covenant, covenant. Is this the same covenant, the same solemn arrangement made or mentioned in Exodus chapter 2 at the beginning of Exodus? Exodus chapter 2 verse 24 where it said God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Is this the same covenant? No, it is not the same covenant. 
It is not the same covenant. But these covenants are connected. These covenants are connected. God multiplied the Hebrews. He made them like the stars in the heaven or the grains of sand on the seashore. He did this and he redeemed them from Egypt to bring them back into the land of promise because of that covenant promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's why he did what he did in their redemption because of the promise that he had made hundreds of years earlier. But if any Israelite, any individual, particular Israelite wanted to participate in those covenant blessings promised to Abraham, they could do so through the second covenant. The second covenant was a doorway into the blessings of the first covenant. The blessings promised to Abraham could be enjoyed by any of his descendants as long as they obeyed the commandment of God which included not only these Ten Commandments, but all of the other laws, right? 603 other ordinances of the Jewish law, the Hebrew law. The the Ten Words were just the synopsis. They were like the cover, right? They were right there on the cover, and you flip it open, guess what? You get more in-depth there behind the spirit of what's on the front cover of this covenant book. So these Ten Words, as we see here, These ten words were not given as a generic cornerstone for any civil society. They were not given as universal principles for basic character formation. No, these were covenant stipulations. These were covenant stipulations given at a particular time to a particular people For a particular reason. But wait, you might say, don't they still reveal the character of the God who gave them? Absolutely. Absolutely, yes. They do. Absolutely. As the Apostle Paul would later affirm about these laws. Take a look. Romans 7, 12. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. The commandment of God, the commandments of God are holy and righteous and good. But simply affirming that statement does not answer the question, how can these ten commandments be holy and righteous and good for me today? For us today? Because remember, they were covenant stipulations given to a particular people at a particular time for a particular reason. How can they be holy and righteous and good for us today? Why would, why should we ask that question? Because of another covenant-focused promise from the Old Testament. Here's another promise related to covenant we find in the Old Testament. This one God made through the prophet Jeremiah. This is what he said. Take a look. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant. Oh, wait a minute. A new covenant? I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. Uh Uh-oh, you've got our attention, God. Which one are you talking about? Not like which one? On the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Oh, now we know which covenant this is. 
This is Exodus 19's covenant. This is the covenant from Sinai. The new covenant in Hebrew, Barit Hadashah, it's not going to be like that old covenant, is it? It's not going to be like that covenant from Mount Sinai. This new covenant is going to be different. That covenant on Sinai, look what he says in Jeremiah 31. That covenant, they broke. Israel broke that covenant. Though I was their husband, the implication, I was their faithful husband. I was their true husband. I was faithful to them, declares Yahweh. Now, looking at that language from the prophet Jeremiah, we we need to think about what does it mean, a new covenant, not like this old covenant. Well, according to Hebrews 8.13, take a look at this passage in the New Testament, Hebrews 8.13, that language there in Jeremiah chapter 31 describes, in fact, the end of the earlier covenant. The new covenant, not like that old covenant, new means it's replacing because what did it say in Hebrews 8.13? In speaking of a new covenant, he, he makes the first one obsolete. If you belong to Jesus Christ by grace, through faith this morning, then you are wonderfully under this new covenant. Rejoice in that new covenant. That long-anticipated Promised through the prophet's covenant, that new covenant is yours by God's grace. But what does that mean in terms of your relationship, my relationship to these old covenant stipulations, these Ten Commandments? They're covenant stipulations for a covenant that's obsolete, according to the New Testament. So what do we do with these Ten Commandments? Well, thankfully, the New Testament does not leave us in the dark on this issue. It actually speaks to this issue in many different ways. Just as I shared three observations earlier about our main text, let me share three truths with you, okay? Three truths from the New Testament regarding Christians and the Ten Commandments. First of all, and this is the best of all of them, first of all, Jesus Christ has fulfilled all the law, including these commandments. Amen? He has fulfilled all the law, including these commandments. Jesus taught this explicitly to us in Matthew five 17. You'll see it on the screen. He said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And he went on and he said, not even the smallest mark from the, the law will disappear until when? All is accomplished. Well, we know when all was accomplished on the cross and through his resurrection. So he he was trying to clarify that his ministry was not about him coming to to break up the law and dissolve the law. You know, he wasn't doing that. He was coming to fulfill the law. But after that fulfillment, things would be different. He came to fulfill the law. Yes, he absolutely did this like we talked about. Uh, when we pointed to the cross, he did this as the Lamb of God, John one twenty nine, the perfect sacrifice on that cross. He, he did what no animal sacrifice could have ever done, could ever do before that and could ever have done. But it's important to emphasize this when we think about the Lamb of God, Jesus. It's important to emphasize that Jesus' sacrifice was 
Take a look at this verse. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spots. First Peter one nineteen. Therefore, look at this from Hebrews. He offered himself without blemish to God. Hebrews 9.14. What is all this blemish talk? What does it mean? It means he was morally pure. He was perfect before the law of God in every way. Righteous. Unlike you and me, Jesus kept the Ten Commandments. He kept them perfectly. He kept them all the time. He kept them in every way they could be kept. He kept them. Jesus fulfilled the law in these ways. Second, Jesus' fulfillment now makes it possible for us to fulfill the law. Huh? What? That's that's an odd statement. Right? Let me clarify, though. We cannot fulfill the law in the same way Jesus did. No, 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 no. We are neither perfect nor divine. We could not do that. What does it mean, then, that we can fulfill the law? Jesus has given us, by fulfilling the law as the Lamb of God and the perfect keeper of the law, He has given us a new heart through His Spirit. It's the same heart that's talked about in Jeremiah 31. Right? Where, where God said, I'm going to write my laws where? On their hearts. Ezekiel said, I'm going to give them a new heart. I'm going to take that heart of stone. I'm going to trade it. I'm going to give them a heart of flesh. This new, living, beating heart. Beating with love for God. Beating with a commandment-keeping impulse to serve, to glorify the redeeming God. The God of Israel. This is what we see here. Jesus has made it possible for us through this new heart, the one mentioned in Jeremiah 31. And and through the Spirit, we can now walk as believers, as disciples, as Christians in Jesus-like, law-fulfilling love. How can I say this? Because Paul says this about love in Romans 13, verses 8 through 10. Look what Paul says. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves... Another has fulfilled the law. Whoa, wait a minute. The one who has loved another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, says Paul, you shall not commit adultery. Number seven. You shall not murder. Number six. You shall not steal. Number eight. You shall not covet. Number ten. And any other commandments are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Wow. You see that? Has Paul just dismissed or gotten rid of the Ten Commandments? No. But he's helping them to understand these commandments in light of the new covenant. He's pointing them to the spirit, the heart behind these commandments, that heart of love. And that heart is now possible for us. So does this mean we should keep, we should keep the Ten Commandments? Yes, but we should do so in light of Christ's fulfilling work and the fact that love is the fulfilling of the law. We keep the commandments in light of Christ's fulfilling work and knowing that the love is the fulfilling of the law. 
This will alter our understanding of the commandments, though. We know this from the New Testament. For example, all you have to do is turn one chapter more in Romans to chapter 14 of Romans from chapter 13. What we're looking at here on the screen. If you go to chapter 14, guess what Paul says there? He undermines traditional Jewish Sabbath keeping. He says, he said, if you want to do it, fine. If you don't want to do it, fine. What does he maintain, though, in chapter 14, verse 6 of Romans? He maintains the principle of daily living in honor of the Lord. If you want to live every day in honor of the Lord, every single day, do it. If you want to set apart a particular day in honor of the Lord, do it. The principle, the key is honor the Lord in what you're doing. Honor the Lord. Now, we know, also know, we also see a contrast to this in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1 through 3, where Paul upholds and uses the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. He uses that commandment to encourage children to obey your parents in the Lord. It doesn't alter the commandment. He just uses it as is. And why does he do that? Because the commandment reveals the way of love. It reveals the loving way. Now, we could spend a whole bunch of time going through each of the Ten Commandments and trying to kind of do what Paul did here, kind of parse and understand them in terms of, is this an element that Christ has fulfilled when he came? If so, where is the spirit of this commandment? How do we apply it today? What evidence do we have from the New Testament that helps us answer those questions for each particular commandment? We could do that. We're not going to. I have a whole series on the Ten Commandments. You can look at the website on the website called The Ten Words, and you can go even deeper into the Ten Commandments if you want to do so. But what we're seeing here and thinking about is this idea of, in kind of summary fashion, how do these ten words or ten commandments relate to us today? And I've got one more point, and this is extremely important. Let me finish with a third truth from the New Testament regarding Christians and the Ten Commandments. Take a look. We must guard against minimizing Jesus' fulfilling work by foolishly maximizing our own. That's where we need to guard against. Please listen very carefully what Paul has to say about the commandments in Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. If it had not been for the law, writes Paul, I would not have known sin. Would he still be a sinner? Yes, but he wouldn't have known sin as he understands it. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. Commandment number 10. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead in a particular way, right? I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Now listen to this statement, please. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through that commandment, it killed me. 
Why do we so desperately need Jesus to fulfill the law for us? Because in Paul's words, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. The gospel of Jesus, as articulated and spelled out in the New Testament, is clear that no amount of our law-keeping will tip the scales for sinners like us. Won't happen. Can't ever happen. And if you want to, if you want to, don't get locked into that word law, like Jewish law. Lock, get, just think about law in terms of any moral code that you set up for yourself. And say, this is what I need to do. This is how I need, what I need to abide by. There is no amount of law keeping or code keeping uh, from us that will tip the scale for sinners in our condition. You might revere the Ten Commandments, brothers and sisters, but you do not keep them in the way that you should. If you haven't come to grips with that fact, you need to this morning. You and I do not keep the commandments as we should, and we never will be able to do so. None of us do this. You may remember that Jesus in Matthew 5, he took commandments number 6 and number 7 and he described how hate and lust, the hate and the lust behind murder and adultery are equally condemning indicators of our spiritual corruption before God. And if that wasn't condemning enough, listen to James, the half-brother of Jesus He says this, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. James 2.10. None of us are wriggling out of this condemnation. None of us are wriggling out from under it. This is why Paul referred to the covenant at Mount Sinai. Remember, Paul, the law is holy, righteous, and good. This is why he referred to the covenant at Mount Sinai in 2 Corinthians 3, 7. He referred to it as the ministry of death carved in letters on stone. That's coming from a Pharisee, a former Pharisee. This is such an important corrective, brothers and sisters. This is such an important corrective that we understand this final point. Though these ten words truly do reveal the character of God and a way of righteousness, they also reveal your character as a sinner leading to condemnation. They condemn you. They condemn me. They put us to death under judgment. Yet this is exactly what God intended. This was part of his big design, his, the big picture plan of God explained in a passage like Galatians 3.22. Take a look at this one. It says this, Paul says, but the scripture, and he means specifically the commandments, the law, imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who what believe did 
did the, did the law show them the way of God? Yes. But it also killed them. Put them under condemnation. It was not a ladder to God. It was a thermometer to show them how sick they were. And if they understood that, they would cry out in desperation for a redeemer, a savior. We should be doing the same thing, brothers and sisters, every single day, continuing to cry out and appreciate, to depend on, to rely on this savior, Jesus Christ. Faith, faith is how we we come to know the promised blessings that God, even back going back to Abraham, that God made those blessings promised to Abraham now available to all who would believe. That's the gospel. We can't do in order to be accepted by God. Do you believe that? We cannot do in order to be accepted by God. All we can do is believe Jesus did it all. That's the gospel, and the ten words can help us savor that. They can help us appreciate that when rightly understood. Brothers, sister, listen, you should absolutely seek in love to fulfill these Jesus-fulfilled commandments. Absolutely. But let us never rely on them. We do not rely on these commandments, do we? as if our acceptance by God could ever be based on our righteousness instead of the righteousness of Christ. Letters like Galatians reveal that this work-centered kind of Christianity was a real danger in the early church. It was a real danger in the early church, but that danger continues to this day, often in very subtle ways. We can all be affected by this kind of thinking. If you tend to think in terms of, I'm not doing enough for God, of God being disappointed with you, of needing to prove something to God, or repaying God for His kindness to you, or somehow personally securing the spiritual position that you have, that Jesus died to give you, then you may be in danger of distorting the gospel in this very way. As Paul asked in Galatians chapter 3, verse 3, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? You see, it was a danger for them. It's a danger for us as well to slip into this mindset. No, the Christian life is not obey in order to receive covenant blessings. That was Sinai. Obey in order to receive covenant blessings. Now, no, for us, the Christian life as we understand it from the New Testament is obey as a response to the blessing of the new covenant. Let us therefore, brothers and sisters, be guided by these commands, these ten words. Let us be guided with new hearts from Christ, hearts full of faith, love, gratefulness, humility, and praise. Moreover, let's not labor for simply a moralistic change in the lives of those around us, including with our children. I think it's clear, should be clear to us, that a reformation of morals will never lead to genuine godliness. 
No, true godliness flows from the Spirit of God and, and, and the Spirit-empowered change that comes through faith and faith alone in the only perfect commandment keeper, Jesus Christ. That's our hope. That's where power flows from. That's what the Spirit uses in our life. So let us rest then. Let us rest then, brothers and sisters, in His righteous works and in His finished work. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together and give thanks to God.